When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor, Dane Baptiste, and my producer friend, Howard Cohen, a.k.a. The Hizzer. Hello! Ask the questions that need to be asked. Like, for example... Who's your favourite A-team member? That's one I've been thinking about. I mean, it's. I am flattered that you feel you even need to ask. It's very obvious. It's the same as my favourite Ghostbusters member. <laughs> <laughs> same as my favourite Gladiator. <laughs> Representation was sparse in the uh, late 80s. But, um, okay, I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm reading a book about uh, about Mr T. And um, <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm going to tell you, Murdoch, for me, is is still the potentially the most interesting character in that show. Murdoch was pretty good. He was pretty good. Did you enjoy the remake? Not massively. I liked it. Uh, I mean, I didn't know uh, Liam Neeson like I know Liam Neeson now, but uh, I still enjoyed it. And I think Quentin Jackson did a good uh, did a good job. Yeah, yeah. So. Look, it was fine. It's just the original series had a particular thing. But anyway, we ask all of the questions, all of all of the questions, all of the questions. And uh, if you like to ask questions uh, and you enjoy the show, then please get in touch with us on all your good social networks. And you can also find us on iTunes and also Acast, the world's largest podcast network. Work, you can find Dane Buffy's questions, everything on there as well, because we have all the best questions and the best guests. Which leads me to the introduction of today's guest, who is a British poet of Greek Cypriot and Caribbean descent. I'm saying Caribbean now because uh, this is uh, international. That's how Americans say well, it. We can be specific and say Jamaican. Yeah, let's be super specific. Yeah, so Greek Cypriot and Jamaican descent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Old, old school mixed race. <laughs> 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 he has been he has been listed by the Independent newspaper as one of the hundred most influential LGBT people in the UK. His poem "I Am Nobody's Nigger," written in response to the use of the racial slur by the murderers of Stephen Lawrence, achieved mass- the masses of social media coverage. His poetry, which often details with questions his identity and social justice, has been featured on the BBC, Radio Four, BBC One, and Channel Four has been commissioned to write for the National Portrait Gallery, Tate Britain and the Tate Modern and his latest book, The Black Flamingo follows a mixed race gay teen as he spreads his wings at university as a drag performer it is the outstanding mind of Dean Atter Oh, thanks for that great introduction there was it, was it good? Was it, was it okay? Yeah, it I, left, I also should leave out as well and, and also a long time fellow uh, colleague, creative colleague oh, because I, I, I was in the light bar when you recited that poem. I remember oh that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember all those where it would be like, there'd be a comedian, a singer, and a poet. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. We did a lot of big spills together, man. But I mean, yeah. you always did well, man. Always did well. But I I remember that poem before, before it was a, a book title mm. and a poetry book title. Yeah, yeah. Very good book. Very poignant book. And you know, on my travels yesterday, while I was doing my uh, allocated free time, uh, I was actually driving past a place in Eltham where Stephen Lawrence was stabbed. Um, that being said, we don't want to begin on a solemn note because sunny day in mm. uh, the capital. Dean, how's it going, man? Long time, bro. Good to hear from you. Good to see yeah, you. Good to see your face. You too. Well, I'm very far from the capital city of London now. I'm in Glasgow in Scotland. This is where oh, I live. Cool, so cool. Quite far from home. And um, yeah, I'm really feeling it at the moment, being so far from my family and having no opportunity to really see them apart from video calls and all that. Yeah, so yeah. yeah you know, life isn't bad. I live with my partner. Um, oh. He's a doctor, so he's on the front line right now. So that's a oh, that's man. a challenge for us. Um, kind of the fear of, of how often is he? How often is he home right now? Just um, um, just with the normal rigor compared to the normal rigors of just being a medical professional. Yeah, I think his schedule stayed the same so far. Like um, his shifts pattern hasn't changed yet, but anything could happen. So we don't know. Exactly. You know, interestingly enough, I just, I'm just finishing up on Adam Kay's book. This is going to hurt. Mm. And, um, you know, he, and funny enough, he's just describing like the rigors of like when you have your partner and having to move and relocate and, uh, yeah. So, uh, still a noble romantic to the end of you, Dean Atta. Mm. <laughs> you, you like Glasgow? 
I do like Glasgow. There's a great kind of creative scene here. There's loads of amazing bands, loads of cabaret nights, comedy nights, poetry nights, like so much to do. And yeah, so they're very, yeah, very big. You can on do it. Um, it's great. <laughs> yeah, no, very, very, very big on a yeah on spoken word in, in Glasgow. So yeah, I, I hope you found a nice niche for yourself. And have you yeah. got any? Um, have you got any tips for? isolating i know who knows when you know this may eventually be over at some point soon but how are you finding it uh stuck in the house well definitely getting out once a day like you know doing that go for a run a cycle a walk whatever it is um but not feeling guilty about like eating lots of comfort food or anything that makes you feel good. Um, and, you know, catching up on all those series you never saw. Like, so now I've seen Killing Eve and Fleabag. Like, I know what the hype is about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Finding them in popular culture now. Yeah. Like, I'm actually engaging. So, because I was always like, you know, I was always about live events. So I always wanted to go to shows and see plays and see live music. And so I thought films and TV series will always be there, like for when for another Me time. Too. Absolutely and this the same. Is that yeah. Time, I guess I'm getting to catch up. Is it? I'm exactly the same. I've um. What I think, so I just finished uh finished Preacher, AMC's Preacher, which is the adapted graphic mm. novel. You say it's uh, good, right? Yeah, really good, really really good. And now I'm getting stuck into American Gods, and uh, yes. yeah, and also and just looking at Community again with uh, new eyes as well. Love that show. I tell you the one thing that I've uh, I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, my one tip to everyone uh, at the moment is, amongst all of this media that you're bringing into your home, try and give yourself that 15 minutes where you pick three banging tunes that you love whether you whoever you have in your life in your house like appreciate a bit of music just for yeah. just for 50 even if it's just 15 minutes a day just pick like I, i'm doing it after lunch every day with my wife and i just picked like three absolute you know belters i like that Do you know, I'll, I'll tell you what i've been doing and i'm gonna spend my weekend doing is that i came across the uh instagram sound clashes with like the r&b uh, producers and songwriters nice and i really and, and i just recently saw um neo and john tay austin Mm. And um, they just go back to back with um, uh, songs that they performed in or songs they have as writer performers as well. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love it. I love it. I, I mean, I wish it didn't take these kind of circumstances, but I like seeing uh, people from the culture and the art form comparing their um, bodies of work mm. um, and celebra- celebrating both of them. So everybody wins. And uh, yeah, it's cool, man. And uh, Dante Austin is an amazing songwriter. And uh, yeah, and anyone who likes, you know, anyone with a uh, romantic disposition, just even just listen to the words and just seeing two people that are able to articulate themselves creatively like for me that's what i'm doing this weekend and i just started uh t-pain and uh lil john so nice my go-to album at the moment has been um britney howard's new album jamie mm. so she's the lead singer from the alabama shakes mm. and oh, her new album is just glorious and it's like she was the last live gig i got to see before lockdown so like mm. i kind of just i'm still living that that moment like her live performance is like going to church like she she really sings her heart out and her lyrics are really kind of like spiritual and revolutionary and she's got this song like called um he loves me and it's about like god loving her even when she's sinning like and it's just really like it feels good it's like he loves me when i'm smoking blunts he loves me when i'm drinking too much he loves me <laughs> and it's just like yes we do need that that is uh, such a wonderful narrative and i love the idea of someone taking i guess what's normally perceived as like a uh, vice and quite and, and quite i guess an edgy narrative and uh, yeah juxtaposing it with the idea of theology and stuff like that and you know I like the message, you know, mm. if we're dealing with an omnipotent, omnipresent, all-loving being, he's going to love you, especially of your sexual orientation or whatever drugs you use or, you know, your addictions and your flaws. So nice. send, it, send it to me after, Dean. Send it to me. I want your whole playlist where you're bumping right now. <laughs> I've got nothing but time. Nothing but time. Um, I suppose it's time for a question, uh, Dane, uh, as it's- is traditional. Yes, sir. Uh, so again, uh, on this Good Friday at time of recording, uh, we thank you and we celebrate you, uh, Dean Atta. Thank you so much uh, for gracing the podcast. Uh, the way our format works, good sir, is that uh, we invite you as our esteemed guest to ask the first question, which can be anything you like, uh, which we will discuss for about 15 minutes. Then Howard will ask a question. We'll do the same. And finally, I will ask a question. We'll do some blah, blahs, have some ha-has. Then everybody have a nice time and go home. Sound like Brilliant. a plan? Sounds great. Excellent, sir. Well, then you have the floor. Okay, so in your introduction um, at the top of the show, you were talking about kind of like representation. Mm -hmm. Um, So my question is about that and role models. So my question is, do you have to see yourself to be yourself? 
Hmm. Good question. Um, oh, I, I have an instant gut reaction to some of that, which is uh, I hate to uh, look at myself. Uh, even right now, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm forced to look at myself, and I'd write, I can know I can hide it, but then I feel like well, if I hide the image, I don't know what will be going. Something could be going on here. Okay. Um, you can't keep running from yourself, Howard. So you could hide <laughs> for how long? But, how long before you have to come face to face with you? Well, I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, uh, I, I suppose how much of do you feel you've covered that in your work, uh, Dean? I think that's what my my work is about. It's about like self-acceptance and self-love. And so you can't do either of those things unless you look at yourself. But I think what helps you with that is having role models, people that look like you or coming from similar uh, backgrounds or experiences as you being out there, being successful to show you it's possible for you to be successful and accepted and loved as well. Yeah, and I, I agree. So following that, I think you do need to see yourself to help you be yourself because uh, I'd say just from a biological perspective as a social species, uh, I think it helps you to just be able to interpret self-image by seeing uh, seeing an image that's similar to you. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's how we kind of develop our personalities and stuff. We take cues from whether it's your family, so you learn voice patterns and you'll learn certain, it's very small nuances about your being in terms of how you walk and how you conduct yourself based on the people you're around. Mm-hmm. And I think we've had a discussion previously before where it's like, I don't have to look for something similar to myself in every single incarnation of art or whatever kind of uh, phenomena I consume. But I think, like you said, it's very important if someone has any kind of aspirations to see an aesthetic that represents themselves. So mm. I think I had a conversation with some friends before where I was like, you know, I've been to Dubai a few times doing gigs and also seeing friends and family out there. And, you know, that particular region of the world, I would argue, is attractive for a lot of the diaspora because probably one of the other places where it has a high level of like commercial productivity, but uh, the typical uh, Western European is not, you're not an underclass compared to them because it's the Emiratis, right? So it's one of the only places where it's like, you don't necessarily feel like a second class citizen. But then that being said, you don't really see a lot of people that look like ourselves on billboards in Dubai. Hmm. Okay. Obviously there's still the emphasis on the capitalism and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's, um, it makes a big difference if you can't see someone that represents yourself, even doing something that appears to be aspirational, it's very hard for you to conceptualize those kind of aspirations in the first place. Like you said, if you, so it's like, I would say to people, you know, I find, uh, one of the least inclusive or possibly racist, uh, industries would be the uh, perfume industry. Okay. Because okay. they, because they're dealing with the stimulus you're dealing with, I guess when you're marketing perfume is smell, right? It's smell. And, uh, Therefore, it doesn't really have any, is the the uh, merit of selling a perfume shouldn't it be just on the basis of uh, vision, something visual, right? Because it doesn't I don't know how it looks, it's how it smells. But then most of the time, when you see like perfumes advertising, it's always a very almost like an alabaster, very porcelain hmm. uh, image you see, and then it's kind of accentuated by a little spray here and there. And I'm like. <laughs> really perfume especially when it's advertising most places most time you see perfumes being advertised or eau de toilette being advertised internationally like in airports and stuff because what people normally buy it there like airports and like terminals and it's like if i'm in another country why am i only seeing like just images of again white anglo-saxon protestants we're in dubai so I don't know who they're trying to sell it to. And also, I mean, some personally, I mean, I'm not a fan of advertising generally, but the fucking perfume adverts are the biggest load of bollocks. I've the one with Johnny Depp. You seen that one where he's burying some kind of fucking necklace in the desert to represent his feeling towards the perfume? Absolute nonsense. Yeah, I mean, even like my favorite perfume, like the. The bottle itself, like, is so, like, in your face. It's like you know Jean Paul Gaultier's, um, of course, the one yeah. where it's the, the male, the male body and the female yeah, yeah. body. Mm. It's got this very stereotypical version of what like the perfect body should look like. But they, yeah, exactly. it's just like it's it's a, it makes you a bit sick, really. Even though it smells great, yeah. like, just to have this like image of like perfection, like, and this it's like, it, yeah. if you don't have that body, then you feel a bit like not well, as good as you should. Absolutely. I think uh, people very much underestimate how influential mainstream media is on forming self-image, especially, like I said, I mean, both being that we both work in a creative industry, a big impetus for me to get into comedy was that I didn't really see or hear anybody that sounded like myself. Mm. And mm. Um, so I wanted to make it a point. Was that of- subject matter? Was that your... Yeah, so some of it was subject matter. Definitely was subject matter um, because I just felt like the the... 
I mean, I'm second generation, but, uh, you know, I'm an ex 10 year old, so I'm an 80s baby. And I just felt like that was really a journey that wasn't really being seen in mainstream media or being described. And I also felt like there was comedy's narrative, especially like starting off on like the black or urban circuit, for lack of a better term. Mm. Um, I guess the audience uh, had the position where they were kind of somewhere between church and Raven. Hmm. And that's yeah. the kind of sensibilities they kind of had where, you know, there were certain taboos you couldn't discuss mm-hmm. and, you know, certain things that people would, even though individually they'd be fine with, in a mob mentality, they'd be a bit more adverse to discussing. So, yeah, it was def- for me, it was definitely a point where I was like, I want to still represent, but at the same time, the na- my narrative and my editorial has to uh, challenge a lot of the uh, stereotypes and a lot of the tropes that I was seeing and stuff. So, yeah, no. I think I picked up on like because I used to go to church on Sundays, and my poetic delivery in the beginning, I think, was very much inspired by my pastor. Like, <laughs> and I think people re- responded well to that as well because they were used to that that tone of voice and that and kind of and yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing when you see like a lot of black comedians; they are very animated and they are, and, it, and it's about it's, it's very loud. And, and uh, like I said, but the raving thing is that a lot of uh, black comedy in this country, especially, is very much rooted in having an affinity with music. Mm. And I say that because if you look at some of the comics now that have enjoyed uh, a large part of mainstream success, there is this inextricable link they have to music. So like Michael Dapper, for example, doing Big Shaq and Man's Not Hot. And mm. Mo kind of started off with being like the types of Brian MCs. And that was the first video that Mo Gilligan did and that became viral. And obviously Mo is an established comic and actor, but you know, a lot of people remember him for like catchphrases and character work and yeah. you know, doing songs with like Shaggy. And then even, uh, Richard Blackwood had a single as well. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Big Nasty, who has now been kind of reimagined as a comedy personality, but again, started off as a musician. Hmm. Yeah. It was like, which is fine for me, but it was like, you know, being that I was in my thirties, it was like, I want there to be a distinction only because I still wanted them to see black creativity in the UK as a monolith. Mm. But you you worked things. you worked music into your uh, your your sitcom Dane obviously uh, on on BBC yeah, Three yeah. that was uh, that was and that, of, that was also and the point the reason why I did that again was for that was a big part of representation so with the sitcom being at the sitcom was the first scripted sitcom with a black cast that the BBC had had on its screens for twenty years wow. so you know which meant they had an entire generation that had lacked anything that represented their journey mm. so what I wasn't able to do with the script and with the cast then I used to soundscape to do anyway. So a lot of the songs in there are quite nostalgic and they're like, oh, I remember that when I was growing up. And the idea of that was, you know, just to provide that representation that I wasn't able to do necessarily with script. And so, yeah, it's, it's just immensely important. I, I mean, especially because what happens if you don't have the representation, what you get is a lot of stuff ends up being homogenized and uh, reduced. And as I said, so, you know, Dean and I as both creatives, but obviously two very, very distinct subgenres of entertainment there. I don't, wouldn't like I didn't like the idea that that was all classified under urban yeah and, uh, that's and hmm. I found that <laughs> but what happens is once you start getting things very homogenized and then what happens is that um and then it becomes diluted and mm. that affects not only the people that are in it who are the contemporary artists but upcoming artists feel like we have very little room within to move in terms of who we want to be but that, 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 to me, it's also kind of, and, and this is where the modern era of, of media is, is, is shifting, I think, a little bit, which is the sense of authenticity. I think that's something that we all kind of, uh, are kind of gradually moving towards with our with our kind of our media, you know, uh, Fleabag, I think will will we'll go down as a, as one of the most authentic uh, viewing experiences of of many generations, right? Because she was. Fleabag, like that, that horrible character is a part of who she was. And I think, I think that's one of the, the, the things, isn't it? That, that maybe in the past, everything was a caricature at times or do you know, do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think, I think we're more sensitive to it now. I mean, I think depending on which group was being represented, then you would have a caricature. Mm. And I think that was a big part of it is that caricatures would ex- exist because people, there wasn't be enough representation or enough of wealth of material to make a good composite character, mm. which is where you get like stereotypical or tokenism in that respect. So I, I, um, cause I think Fleabag is full of caricature. Like, yeah, I don't know about the main character, but definitely all the, all the other characters mm. are caricatures. Like yeah. a priest that can be like seduced by this woman. Like hmm. it just seems like that really like, it's just playing into some sexual fantasy of yeah, yeah. writer. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think when yeah, writers a lot of time, obviously you write from what you know, and then I guess you can embellish that for comedic or dramatic effect. 
But I feel like I think there's a lot more. Uh, you probably see a lot more caricatures or more, for lack of a less uh, uh, easy way of saying it, like more conspicuous archetypes because right. we because, because identity politics plays such a big part in our self-image nowadays uh, socially. Then it's like I feel like before there'd be a time where you may have noticed. So I, I really like a lot of anime, for example. I like watching anime. And one of the shows are like Ram and a Half where, you know, he would change his gender hmm. and essentially it would be intersex. And it wasn't really that big of a deal. I didn't really think that much more about it. In the same way that I used to read Marvel comics, there was a character called um, North Star in a group called Alpha Flight, which are like the Canadian Avengers. Hmm. Yeah. I remember him coming out like in the late 90s. And this is when like comics were still like just... You couldn't read them online. And people send notes to the editor and stuff and being like, you can't have a gay superhero and all this other stuff. For me, it was like, this does not, what effect can this possibly have in him being a superhero? <laughs> and also it's a comic book. So I don't understand why people get so, like I remember people getting upset when they found out Dumbledore, when um, J.K. Rowling said Dumbledore was gay. And I was like, it's a, it's a character. It I think some amazing, for me, like gay representation, even though it wasn't necessarily a positive character, it was like Omar in The Wire. Oh, okay. oh amazing. But he was a positive character. He well, was an amazing character. He was an amazing character. Was, and, as was Snoop. As was Snoop. And, I, and yeah. that was, this, and you know, that's a perfect example. So The Wire is, that's the best example for me. I mean, everyone has their reasons why The Wire is one of the best, uh, you know, television creations of all time. But for me, I believe it was, that is probably been, and it is. I think it is the longest running show with a uh, majority black cast. Hmm. But um, yeah, The Wire showed such a wealth in its archetypes and and showing African Americans and diaspora in general. I don't think it's been that good. So yeah, you know, Omar, you know, as being, being a gay protagonist in the show, I thought it was amazing. As was, and then Snoop being an antagonist, hmm. I think it was amazing. And you know, the way the characters' reactions to them. That, mm. you know, I think even like caricature over the top and absurd kind of characters can be representative like i think michaela cole's chewing gum like mm. it's very absurd sometimes but yeah, like, yeah. i still feel like it represented like a lot of things i recognized hmm. sure. I it was really powerful it's really and i think sometimes having the char- characters are good again if they are rooted in the i guess so back to your point howard some caricatures are good because sometimes you need to see the embellished version because then it allows, as you said, for people to, uh, you know, be a lot more comfortable with their self-image and seeing something that's a bit more elevated. It's like, well, I mean, I guess I'm not like that because most people, I guess, in terms of how they carry themselves and what their expression of their self-image or personality is, it's going to be moderate depending on the occasion. So it's like, yeah, having someone be super extravagant, I, I think it's very helpful. Like, you know, I think RuPaul has probably done, I mean, it's not my place to say, but I think she probably, she, she's, she's been very instrumental in allowing for... Uh, the intersectionality of both having, you know, black members of the trans community, the LGBT community, or mm. even the drag community, because they're, they're not necessarily they're mutually, not mutually exclusive, but not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And yeah, it allowed and them it's a very to... different way. Tyler Perry was also doing that. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like having like that Medea character, like in it, just making people laugh. Hmm. Like it isn't necessarily like claiming any kind of transness or drag, but it's doing something to show you like, um, and I guess Eddie Murphy did it lots. Like, um, mm. you know, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we, I feel like the diaspora doesn't really get a lot of credit for pushing the envelope especially where LGBT is concerned mm. because, you know, I was, well, I mean, obviously, because I feel like while there is obviously a lot of endemic issues in terms of homophobia, mm. at the same time, uh, we very courageously stood in places um, where historically people want to be out. So, you know, you had like, with a spoken word, like Langston Hughes. Mm. And then so far as like, even with uh, activism with James Baldwin and yeah. literature as well, Justin Fashionu being the out, first out uh, gay footballer, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Ocean coming out. Or, I mean, Little Richard was out and flying the rainbow flag when TV was still black and white. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, I would, again, I wouldn't say no for sure, but I would like to think that uh, a lot of uh, my contemporaries in the black LGBT community saw these iconoclasts as people that allowed them to be more comfortable being themselves. Mm. So I think, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely right. I think it's infinitely important for a social species to see someone that's like themselves. And it's what, and it's always what I've tried to do with, what I do, uh, with comedy and stuff as well, is have a lot of my narrative challenge uh, taboos within my community, challenge perceptions of my community as well. Mm. And, you know, sometimes, and, and I guess before a lot of the time when you see uh, a black or brown or uh, someone of dual heritage in a space by themselves, a lot of the time you might think, oh, is that person selling out or are they trying to appear? But, you know, 
sometimes you need somebody just to open that door initially. So, mm. um, yeah, because it's a lot of pressure if it's just one person doing it. Yeah, but and then to say like, like many people there, you know, there isn't as much pressure on that one person to represent for everyone because yeah. no one person can represent for a whole race. Exactly. Yeah. So wealth representation is so important. You know, it, while you know you do, you, you definitely need like you know a Mo Gilligan. And you might need Dayton Baptiste. But at the same time, you know, you, you do want a Richard Blackwood, but you also need like a Richard Ayoade as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? oh, and, yeah. I, and I always said that, and it was like, I remember Darren Watson is the promoter I used to work with a lot in comedy. And the discussion we'd always have about my material was like, it's not just for the diaspora are based in London or in large metropolises like, you know, Manchester or Bristol. Like, yeah, it's for black and, you know, mixed people that are in Glasgow who, don't, yeah. who are not necessarily spoiled for this um, kind of wealth of representation for themselves because, uh, yeah, I would like to suggest to people that there is a correct way to act. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you exist outside of that, then, um, you know, your credibility as a, as a, as a person of colour is a, isn't the same as someone who's had the wealth of like cultural um, indicators and spots in London, for example. Yeah. As a, as a guy growing up wearing glasses as a Jew uh, growing up, uh, you, you gravitate towards people, uh, characters like Millhouse in the Simpsons oh. and, uh, and, and Woody Allen, obviously not as uh, popular now because of potential uh, acts of uh, terrible crimes. Um, and uh, I definitely understand a lot of what Dane's talking about because, you know, no, and with that kind of sense of that question is, is fascinating because, you know, seeing people and identifying with people, you then try and emulate them in some way, don't you? Or you, you, or you kind of try and uh, pull a, pull bits of their character into your character because obviously you, you tend to admire them in some way or another, or or or, or the opposite, and you try and hide bits of your oh, character sure. that are like sure. that. I mean, Kanye West definitely changed my life. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, at a time, well, yeah, I hadn't had someone have such a, an effect on me since Nas. So first time I, I remember seeing Nas's video for One Love, um, which uh, also features Q-Tip and is writing to a friend in prison. And it's kind of like, oh, so you can be from a certain area, but it doesn't mean you have to have like a limited vocabulary. It doesn't mean you have to lose a sense of yourself or your identity mm. just because you may, uh, you know, go to a different school to most of your friends or you don't live in the same area, not from an estate. So that was, yeah, had a massive cultural significance to see that kind of representation. And I felt the same about Tupac because he could be so like gangster and then like write songs to his mom and write poetry that was really beautiful and thoughtful. And it was just like, it showed me that there's not one way to be a black man. And, exactly. you know, even those that come across as gangster will have a soft side too. And so you can't stereotype yeah. people. And, and you can have that duality and it can be a positive thing and it, and it shows, you know, uh, that you are multidimensional. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's why representation, representation has always been so important for us. So I, Absolutely agree, yeah, that you need to uh, see yourself to be yourself. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you, Dean. That's a a hell of a question. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I don't think we could actually cover that as we could even, we could do that for the full hour, right, Dane? <laughs> we could. We'll have you back. We'll do it again. Oh, yeah. live live podcast we'll do it then yeah come and do the live one at some uh, point uh, we'll get you down from glasgow um, um my question was was kind of loosely based on your on your um your book uh, mm-hmm. uh dean um because um it's, it's an interesting book when you kind of i haven't read it but i've, I've read up a, about it a little bit and, and 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 kind of what age range is it is it targeting because it feels like it's targeting quite a young age range for quite a, a challenging subject right 
Well, me and my um, editor had said it was for ages 14 plus, but then librarians in schools and such have been saying it's for age 12 plus. So, um, so you know, a decision's been made out of our hands. So mm. I think they're saying younger people can read it. But I was thinking, you know, um, the older teenagers, really, that's yeah. what I was thinking about. But my question, because it's kind of um, obviously, uh, I think a book that will, you know, from from reading up on it, obviously resonate with 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 some young people that age range could uh, could vary depending on your upbringing and your your demographic obviously um and so my question uh, to you and dane was um when you kind of look back on your uh, on your childhood which mm. book gives you the fondest memories one book yeah because i i think I, and, and i'll tell you what mine is if it's uh, yeah. useful to kick off um I, I can't tell you the amount of times I read Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kid. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, and, yeah. and I swear to you, like, I think I might have kept reading that even though I was a teenager, which I'm a little bit embar- <laughs> embarrassed because obviously, you know, you start reading. I think that's one of the books that you read as a kid, like you're five years old or whatever. Oh, yeah, you, get, you get to that age where, like, basically Roald Dahl and Judy Bloom are the Coke and Pepsi of young literature. <laughs> i mean i i often think that my obsession with chocolate has has largely been founded upon that book because it just made you want to keep i don't know there's something so special about that book to me and 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 and, you know i think about having children or or when i've had nephews and nieces and i've read stuff to them my go-to thing was always willy wonka and the chocolate factory uh and, and and it almost brings me a bit of um you know, like nostalgia, you know, you kind of really think back and you think about your, your childhood and you kind of memories bleed into other memories and you start to remember stuff. And I always think that's a, an amazing sign in, uh, in nostalgia when you start to do that. Well, I really liked Roald Dahl as well, actually. Like, uh, but it was um, the Revolting Rhymes book. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember. Took, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he took all these kind of traditional fairy tales and just made them a bit darker or a bit more like um, dangerous. And so he had, for example, the Little Red Riding Hood story. Hmm. Um, she saves herself and she kills the wolf. So there's a line where it's like she whipped the pistol from her knickers. And I remember it. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I, remember. <laughs> I remember thinking, "Whoa, that's it." <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty racist cold. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I just loved that strong female character just saving herself and not needing like the huntsman to come and save her. Mm. Um so and yeah, I just loved anything that was kind of like rhyming and I really loved Doctor Zeus as well. And right. I think I read them much older than they were meant for. You know, I just could still I could still go back to like Green Eds Can Ham and read it and like so I'm happy I have nieces now so I can read them these children's books that I loved. And mm. um, you can read them too because you know, I, I, it's it's almost when people say it's like them I so for me it would have been more comics and graphic novels mm. uh, as well as books. And people was like but you're watching a cartoon I'm like, yeah but whoever came up with this was not a child. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't well, made and, by a child. And, and, and the Marvel film series becoming the most successful film series in history yeah. proves that anything that was for children... I told everybody. Yeah. I told everyone. Had I, had I been older and wiser, I would have invested in Disney stock. Or Marvel, Marvel hadn't floated on at the stock exchange at the time because they... At a time when they were in decline, I still was into comics somewhat, but yeah. Mm. I, um, hey, now is a good time to buy stocks. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I've, yeah, no, I've seen. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in touch with my broker. It's um, <laughs> it's 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 an interesting one for me. So for me, I would say the X Men. That that was it for me. It was it was uh the parallels between like you know, I, I guess I discovered yeah the X Men in like the uh, mid nineties. Yeah. So around the time where, you know, where you're having discussions about hooliganism on terraces and the whole Stephen Lawrence and the McPherson inquiry, and then discovering the X-Men and tagline being like sworn to protect a world that fears and hates them. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that sounds very familiar. So (laughs) I was, uh, yeah, just drawn, I was drawn to the whole thing. And and for those who don't know, the X-Men was Marvel's attempt to uh, represent the struggle of African-Americans allegorically and with Professor Xavier being Martin Luther King and going for a more harmonious and peaceful way of um, mutants to humans coexisting, whereas Magneto being like Malcolm X and being like, my people have suffered, we are the future, and it's by any means necessary that we will achieve our equality or our dominance if we're going to be opposed. And I was like, I love it. Mm. And uh, (laughs) I love it, yeah. And especially, and I kind of, got into the X-Men and for those who are comic book geeks around a time where it was the combination of Jim Lee penciling and drawing 
and a writer called Chris Clement. And that's when I introduced like the new international X-Men with like Storm from Africa and Nightcrawler being from Germany and um, hmm. Colossus from being Russia and stuff. And yeah, and Wolverine being Canadian, which people t- tend to forget that Wolverine is a Canadian as well. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I definitely got into that. And, and did, from- did, uh, did, how did you feel? Uh, I don't know if you, you watched it as well, uh, Dean, about the, the kind of film series, because they have gone on those films for a long time, right? The Sony ones, yeah. yeah the they, X-Men um, ones are... Uh, yeah. we set our expect- I set my expectations very low initially. So the f- first two weren't that bad. I think mm. Brian Singer did a good job. Then the third one was just an atrocity. And then, um, it, and then it came back as the new version with, um, uh, you know, Fassbender and, uh, and McAvoy. And, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and I, I actually thought the first two were really good. And then it's just turned into this amorphous blob of kind of timeline nonsense where nothing actually, you, I just don't know what this is anymore, really. Like, I've not followed a story got, across the it, film, so. I think it got convoluted, but without, like, I just think that at the time, film, adapt, comic book adaptations weren't being given the uh, respect that they are given now. Mm. So this is all, all before like the Dark Knight, and then it was like now. And I guess uh, the best thing about when you are making adaptations of anything involving nerd fare is that <laughs> you would always you can always get a realistic feedback on how well you're progressing because you post something up and they'll get back to you on the internet straight away. So it's like you know, it's been revenge socially. It's revenge on nerds, which actually bodes well for like comic book adaptations. But <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, def- I initially definitely got into uh, started off with comic books, and I'd say. A book that I probably would definitely reread. I mean, I, I mean, as a picking one is quite tough as a child. I'd mm. say, "The Boy Who Cried Wolf." Hmm. I like that, but the book, the memory is different, and it's only because I had a teacher at the time, my primary school teacher, and at the end of this version of the book, when the boy gets eaten, the last page in French it says "C'est la vie," so that's life. <laughs> and she was like, "But that's not life; it's death. A child has been killed." And I was like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then from then, I don't know what she did, but that was the catalyst. So even when I remember reading like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I was kind of like, aren't these children dying from neglect though? But <laughs> <laughs> like Augustus Gloop like almost drowned. Isn't that like corporate neglect? Dane, there's a lot of fucked up things in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Which, also, know, the slavery, Howard, I wasn't okay with that. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, and Grandpa Joe fucking lies in bed for however many years, one sniff of a golden ticket, and he's up and fucking going to the factory. I, mean, I don't know if he was claiming, I don't know what the uh, social welfare state looked like in the, at that time. But I do know, in fact, uh, back to the point of representation, Charlie Bucket was originally written to be black. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, originally written to be black. Because I was like, there's a lot of poverty in this. Mm. The hell is not quite typical of your average, uh, you know, even working class or upper working class white family. And I was like, that doesn't normally happen. Like, all grandparents sharing a bed. I don't know any English people that do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the health and safety at the bloody factory is a joke. Like the, the, there's all sorts of legal cases that would have happened after that, that story yeah. finishes. Great way of getting out of that would be to relinquish your uh, role as a CEO and offloaded to some unsuspecting poor Patsy. Here you go, Charlie. Have a factory. Is this factory up to code? Ah, I want it. <laughs> well, we solved that one there. Uh, I mean, <laughs> but, okay, one of the things I was asking, I was, the reason I was asking this question is because is um, I've got a theory uh, that, that, that the, the world that we're living in, in this, in this era, um, the idea of books... <laughs> is it, 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 we're so disconnected from them, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know if you, if you know, for most people, this is the thing. The f- phone is the bloody thing that that disconnects us from the actual physical world, right? So, how do well, you? It's an encyclopedia at your fingertips, so it's a lot harder to uh, to preach about uh, literature. But then, I get I the best way, and I guess why books and and reading not just on a Kindle or a phone is because. It's Alan Moore, so the guy who wrote The Dark Knight, the original graphic novel, mm. and The Watchmen. And he was saying, like, words are spells, which is why it's called spelling. And, <laughs> yeah, and he was like, you know, there's just still a lot of power in reciting words and being aware of even archaic literature and language. Because if you look at, like, upper echelons of society, mm. and I was trying to explain to people, is that like, there's a reason why when you get to a certain level of society, there's no, like, masculine and feminine denominations for your work. 
So, you know, you can be an actor or an actress or a policeman or a policewoman. And now we have more gender neutral terms, but historically you'd be, you know, your, your gender would also designate your job as well. Whereas if you worked in a legal, clerical, or medical profession, they don't have that distinction because the language and the words that they use is very different. Like how a doctor or a lawyer speaks is very different to how your average layperson speaks. Yeah. Like for example, there's still a lot of elements of law which is still described in Latin. When you mm. talk about like, you know, capitus domine or like habeas corpus, you won't know what that means unless you read. Mm. But <laughs> every single human being knows to know what that means. In the same way that like if you live in the UK, the Magna Carta again is a word I wouldn't necessarily know what that means because you know its origin is from it has a Latin origin. But again, that is very important in terms of like concepts of ownership and just autonomy and just being a free human being and not being an indentured servant, like the letter of the law is a very important thing to know about. So, yeah, I think there's still some relevance in terms of reading. And I think that, like, I, I still, I read 1984 at 15. Mm. And to me, I've been great books since then and before that, but it still stands out as probably one of the greatest ways of chronicling like human post-war existence mm. and almost giving like a framework for how power brokering and power shifts, governance, this works in like the modern world. Yeah. I mean, so, D- Dean, do, do you think, you know, technology has kind of pulled our brains away from, from books in a way or with the audiences that you're targeting? Do you feel that they've... Well, like I, I, I made sure or I was really um, keen to have an audio book for my book because mm-hmm. I know there are some people that, that will prefer it that way to listen to mm-hmm. me tell you the story. And, um, you know, I know I love audio books. So I, I thought that was a really great opportunity to kind of like work with one. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm dyslexic. So for me, reading takes a lot longer than it might do for some other people. And mm. it's quite exhausting. And so, and there's lots of dyslexic people. There's lots of people that just are time poor maybe, and, or don't prioritize reading, but might have a journey where they can listen to an audiobook or something like that. So I think that's why podcasts are so popular. People want to feel like they're learning and enriching themselves. Yeah. But they don't always want to sit down and open the pages of a book. So I think audiobooks and Kindles and all that are really good ways to do it, as well as sitting down with a with a physical book. And I think we think, oh, books are so expensive, but we still have libraries that are free. Like, and I think people need to remember that, that they stock all the modern books and they can get in anything for you if you ask them for it. And that's free. And so there isn't, you don't have to own these books to, to have access to the knowledge that's within them. So I think people need to remember that and, and, and look after libraries, especially. You can, I mean, you could, with a hundred pounds, you would have enough money, would visit enough car boot sales and jumble sales to start your own library. Books are expensive. And also, I think, yeah, on that subject, libraries, people really underestimate the value of libraries in our society. A, because obviously what the the wealth of knowledge they they, they have and, you know, the access to it. But also libraries, just as an environment, provide a very calming and tranquil place for anyone that may be dealing with mild mental health issues and still want to be able to learn or provide a place where you want to do kind of quiet study. And because I remember when I started doing comedy, going to the library during the day, hmm. just like read periodicals and just to be able to write in an environment that was a bit more, uh, I guess, scholastic. But I've seen a lot of people who go to libraries. People really need libraries because they're like not everyone has the finances or necessarily the mental res- resilience to go to like a coffee shop. Hmm. Yeah. Would, and a library definitely provides that. It's so important. But I agree with you, Dean. Like uh, there is a worry, Howard, obviously that technology as technology makes books seem to be obsolete but i think in the same way that you know thousands and thousands of years ago when things were just etched into stone literally or written on papyrus books coming along would have been revolutionary then as well so i think it's it's never it's not necessarily the uh the vehicle doesn't really matter it's the journey or mm. the destination i guess yeah uh, and i think technology is providing new forms of like writing i think the people that write really good twitter threads that is an art form like yeah find a way of just different way of communicating and exchanging knowledge and also um you know like one in five americans are functionally illiterate mm. so you know and phonics has always been an effective way of people learning how to understand stuff anyway so I and think, we start loving stories before we can read them ourselves we're, we're read to as children and yeah. we and we love it. Like, and my nieces, you know, they're one and three years old and they think they know what the words say because I've been reading it to them. Like yeah. they'll tell me the story and they have a rough idea of it. If you read them. Oh, yeah. The fun, the learning through phonics, it, um, 
it definitely helps. It was actually uh, one of the most effective ways that they would teach people, obviously, in America who were descendants of slaves or people that had been affected by Jim Crow, and they'd learn through phonics. Even, uh, I mean, not the best example, but uh, learning with phonics was uh, Bill Cosby's whole drive for um, increasing the literacy amongst the African-American community as well. And I think once they started removing that method of using phonics for learning, then mm-hmm. they started seeing a rise in uh, illiteracy rates in America, where now America's uh, literacy is uh, lower than that of Cuba and South Africa. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the actual using phonics uh, and audiobooks is a very effective way of learning. Well, thank you both for answering my question. Uh, I would just add one thing about books, which is I know I'm stand, I'm sitting in front of a, a, a library of books in, in, our, in our house. I don't actually think people need to own books. I think you should just buy it read it pass it on pass it on switch with people that's probably the best thing um knowledge knowledge socialism but um but those were those were some good um some good you know things for people to go away and have a read of uh there's plenty of things you know again representation from a you know an accomplished writer and published writer who's dyslexic so anybody can do it very important (laughs) absolutely no there's there's a theory though dean that um they reckon that uh, one of the issues with dyslexia is um because only in the west we tend to read from left to right Hmm. And actually, the hemispheres of the brain is quite disorienting. Whereas, like you know, Arabic and yeah. like a lot of like, uh, Sanskrit or Japanese and stuff is written read from right to left. Yeah, and they find it maybe with some dyslexic. If they were able to arrange words from so you can read them right to left, it helps you to interpret a lot better. Just wow. to do it, yeah, hemisphere. But um, wow. Interesting. I mean, I could just be watching, so we should definitely research that. That's why books are important. So. <laughs> uh, Dane, it's it's over to you for the final question of the show. Yes, uh, the final question of the show. So uh, given uh, the previous topics we've discussed, Dean, uh, you uh, have definitely, I'd say, categorised yourself as being a very positive activist so far as um, articulating the uh, black LGBT journey and also being a positive point of representation. And I say this uh, for uh, the listeners so they are aware that uh, when you are dealing, I mean, dealing with society as a homosexual uh, is difficult in itself in many ways. Uh, When you're dealing with the intersectionality of being, uh, you know, of BAME or dual heritage, that adds, literally adds more spice to the recipe as well. (laughs) As I'm sure you can confess more than myself, Dean. And then, because I used to say to a lot of my friends and I always met with quizzical stares back that like when it's like a bank holiday or the summer holidays if you're a teenage person from the LGBT community it's very rare that there are social structures set up for you to meet your peers of mm. a similar nature like me and my friends or like ever we can go like bowling and stuff and you know think about it but it's like how often are you going to see like you know five or six like gay and lesbian guys or guys and girls going to like do laser quests or go bowling or just go jamming the TGI Fridays. Hmm. I, I mean, I, in my experience, even with some of my friends, like the only time I even see like just casual social structures that allow for younger people from the LGBT to come together, uh, maybe like the YMCA and stuff. And yeah, and I mean, I think that, that, that example, example uh, like kind of supposes you can recognize all LGBT people. Well, yeah, maybe so not. You may have been in TGIs or Laser Quest with a group of <laughs> LGBT time, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but then it, but then I guess. In terms of nar- but I say that only in terms of narrative, like where the uh, privilege would be able to openly discuss, you know, your experiences as a gay black teenager. It's very different to you doing that if you know the conversation you have in like a, a sixth form common room is very different to what you'd be having if you are, you know, someone who's a heterosexual. Is a probably a better way of putting it. Yes. So I guess in a roundabout way, what I wanted to ask is that I, I feel like. I'm not saying that that's changing, but, you know, there are voices like yourself that provide that representation. So, and I would assume a lot of the uh, uh, eventually describing Black Flamingo are kind of semi-autobiographical. Yeah. So my question was, after that horribly straight rambling, (laughs) of of trying to secure a hole I don't dig myself into, um, the question was just like, what's it looking like to be a Black Flamingo nowadays? And I didn't say that because, you know, I've had Stephen Kamos on the podcast before, and I was like, you know, when's the last, when's the first time you heard the word Batman? Because like slurs like that of that nature will use, I use very flippantly in the yeah, community yeah. without even thinking about it, even somebody like myself. And mm-hmm. it wouldn't even be if I was being homophobic, but again, it's like flippantly in the same way that people would be like, oh, dude, that's gay. Mm-hmm. Like, thinking about it. So I'm like, so my question is just, what's it looking like now? How's it feel? What, what's I it saying? For me, it feels fabulous. And um, for 
the young people in the schools I've been to visit. So I've gone into lots of schools and done readings and Q and A's and workshops um, around the book. And they are, there's like LGBT clubs in schools now, like oh, there's amazing. rainbows all up and down the school corridors. Um, they do LGBT history month as well as obviously doing black history month. Um, so mm. there is that representation there for young people. There are more and more young people out as um, LGB or T in school um, mm. and teachers kind of have more resource and understanding to kind of support those young people. Um, so, you know, in the book itself, in my book, The Black Flamingo, I, I tried to show that kind of um, progress had been made and like, but also reflect on places like where my family's from in Jamaica, where it's not as easy. Um, mm. And also times in the past when it wasn't as easy. So we say, you know, Justin Fashion, who was the first openly gay footballer, but then he committed suicide because of, in part, because of the kind of the media and how they represented yeah. him when he came out. So it's very, um, you know, we've made a lot of progress, um, you know, just in, in, in my lifetime, in our lifetime, and hopefully there'll be more progress ahead of us. Um, but I think at the moment, yeah, it's kind of, there's there's more representation, there's more role models, um, there's more open dialogue and more acceptance. So you will see maybe a mixed group of friends where some are LGBT and some are not. And they'll be able to talk about everyone's kind of dating life and everyone's, you know, crushes and whatever. And it doesn't have to be, you just have to have a gay group of friends together and yeah, a straight yeah. group of friends together. There'll be a mix up as well as there'll be, you know, the Muslim friend and this friend and that friend, you know what I mean? It's not so separated, but well, that's just big cities like London, I'd say maybe mm, in yeah. other places, it's very different, you know, yeah. and there isn't as much support. So I'm making assumptions only based on where I've been to visit schools well, and the places I know. Well, I mean, obviously we do, you know, a lot of our um, research in, 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 in society is based on these big cities because it's where the most people are and therefore it's the most data. So in some ways that it is quite, good representation of, uh, of, of issues. It, it, like in one of the schools I went, I went to in Glasgow here where I live now, um, a girl got sent out because this, when I started my introduction, she said, I don't want to be read to by a gay person. Mm, wow. And the teacher just got her out the room straight away. And for me, I was like, maybe she should have stayed because maybe she could have seen this gay person has a lot of really interesting things to say yeah. and is a good person. And, um, and you know, whatever her prejudice was, wherever it had come from, chucking her out the room straight away won't necessarily help her overcome it. But, that, um, but maybe it will give us some pause to, you know, you know reflect and think. Yeah, but, but then at the same time, I guess people also have to learn that, you know, there are, if you're going to marginalise an individual or a group, yeah. there should be consequences for that as well. Like if, yeah, because if it was allowed, if she was allowed yeah. to make a homophobic comment, any of her, you know, um, classmates exactly. that might be gay would yeah, feel like be, this isn't a safe space for them. Exactly, so, so you shouldn't normalise it. And, you know, if... If you're happy with exclusion, well, you can be the first. <laughs> Come on, class. It says, since you find not including everybody, we don't include you. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the thing to me about uh, uh, kind of homophobia as, as a particular form of prejudice, obviously, is, is, is that it's, it's one of the ones where religion, and I know you could argue religion comes into racism and obviously. Uh, anti-Semitism, uh, which I've, yeah. ta I've talked about on this podcast before, but but the kind of religious element uh, ag against uh, the gay community is 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 one of the. I mean, I I still can never really get my head around it, and the idea that in kind of 2020, uh, coronavirus aside, um, that you would still be going, yeah, that book from like well well long ago says this about gay people so i'm kind of not into talking to you i mean i don't know how you you know i don't know if that it's well, what you've encountered they read read this book from 2019 by dean atta it says something exactly, different. exactly. <laughs> exactly which is much, yeah, much nicer book but that being said that howard i mean i was trying not to think about necessarily just as theologically it's mm. like if you know people have a secret in your society and you can squeeze money out of them to either hide that secret or appear to alleviate them or what's supposed to be a shame, then that's a good revenue stream for you. But if people are happy with who they are and don't have to go and ask you to facilitate God forgiving them for just existing, then, you know, you lose a revenue stream. So, of course, you can be like, the Bible says that, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I'm going to go on record now and be like, I think 98% of people of today who quote the Bible haven't read all of it. Hmm. And, and I God. think... You know, if you do believe in sin, you do believe in forgiveness. 
as well. So I think, you know, coming back to that Brittany Howard song I mentioned mm. earlier, like I'd like to believe in a God that would love people with all their flaws and their vices and their sin. And, you know, if I'm going to believe in a God, it will only be a God like that. Um, mm. But then I, I, going back to the school thing, uh, mm-hmm. Dean, because obviously you have a unique kind of perspective on that. The, 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 you know, I remember growing up, in 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 the era I did, where I would say that multiculturalism had had kind of started to kind of work in in, in a number of ways, in the sense that my peer group was was white, uh, Asian, uh, black, Jewish. You know, there was a real mixture of us, and and growing up as we did, whilst there would be. Uh, uh, I would argue kind of, you know, everyone gets abused for everything in a group of boys, uh, at the teenagers. Um, you, you, there was still a camaraderie where race wasn't part of the question of whether you would be accepted into the group. Um, okay. but I would have said, you know, if I'm honest and my friends from school would agree, if any of us had come out, um, or been gay, then that would have been a, a massive problem and really complicated. And I wonder if, you know, kind of 20 years on or so, since I was that age well, that's, range that's, that's the reason i asked as well how because mm. like, I, have, I have a friend not recently a few like years now but frank i had a friend that came out and uh and alton was like well you could have told me we're friends we're friends but he was like could i have done though <laughs> of course you can but but what his point was it wasn't to say that he thought i would have like an adverse response to it but he's like you know then you might understand but when you think about where we grew up and the people we're around it's not really necessarily would have been as straightforward as that and i'm like you know, when you put it that way, no, I understand. I understand. And, you know, because you just, yeah, you just, which is why I ask, cause, so I, not to be a, a question where it's like, oh, I'm speaking to a gay girl, so I want to ask a gay question. It's, it's, <laughs> it's literally because, like, yeah, I just want to find out because I always felt like I'd be a liberal person. And, and an interesting thing, so I was in the boys' choir at school. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was the only straight member of the boys' choir. <laughs> um, I, but I really enjoyed it. But look, again, looking back on reflection, it was like, you know, in a way, this was a safe space for these guys to be able to express themselves and be themselves. Yeah. Well, in my book, the character, you know, he quits the choir because he's getting picked on for being a choir boy. And like, hmm. choir boy is like a euphemism for being a gay boy. Like, in it, yeah. And I, 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 remember, I remember having something very similar with me as well. Where I, but in the end, I was just like, I just can't bother to go to practice every lunchtime. But, mm-hmm. but I remember, yeah, there was, always a, there was always that instant connotation as well. So my friend was like, well, then I would have told you, but you know what it was like. And I was like, yeah, but I would have understood. And blah, blah. But yeah, on reflection, it's like, no, I guess I understand why. Which is why I was asking, because in the same way, it's like, we could argue that representation uh, has improved significantly and all uh, the um, methods by which we have access to representation have improved over the years. Mm. But then at the same time, I think, you know, European hair and like skin bleaching cream still sells, you yeah. know, all over the world, which is why I wanted, so that, I just wanted to be by the question to be like, you know, because there's also intersectionality there as well, where I think, you know, working in the creative industry and I work, and I, there's a lot of uh, work between myself and members of theatre where, mm you know, being a member of the LGBT community seems to be very much more accepted, A, by the by, by the more affluent, wealthy community. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, to be honest, it's like, I mean, if you don't want to be around gay people, why are you in entertainment in the first place? Um, <laughs> you know, like, you should not be doing theatre, for sure. But then at the same time, I feel like that privilege may not be afforded to, like, you know, a black working class man, for example, or, or a, a, you know, or a kid growing up in Glasgow, working class in Glasgow, for example. Yeah. While, yeah. you know, in my position, like school and stuff, which may be a, a tolerant and accepting, it's just within their small social paradigms, whether it's family and stuff, is, do you think, on a more personal level, do you find that people seem to be a lot more accepting and uh, respectful to the lifestyle or... I think on a personal level, I think once you know a person, yeah. many kind of different kind of background to yourself, you, yeah. you get to understand it more. You get to ask kind of the questions, you know, and it, it, it can feel awkward at first. <laughs> questions like this. Yeah. <laughs> what's, it, what's, what's it like? <laughs> so you'll, you'll get to ask for your listeners who won't get to ask, you know, and, and but I think it's, well, I don't know. I was going to say it's rare to not know a gay person, but maybe it's not. Like, I don't know, because I am a gay I mean, person. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Everyone I know knows a gay I person. Say, I would say it's very rare. <laughs> it's very it's very rare. It's, it'd, be, it'd be very strange if you didn't know. Uh, that's very strange. But I've got a, a, a poem in my book, um, you know, that says, you know, it's called How to Come Out as Gay. And one of the first lines is like, don't 
don't come out unless you want to don't come out uh, because you think society expects you to come out for yourself um, and it's more about you know when it's the right time and when you feel comfortable and when you feel safe so I don't advise kids that are still in school or that live with homophobic family to come out and risk being you know kicked out of their home or bullied in school I'd mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say you know, if you want to wait, wait till you go uni or wait till Absolutely. you're an adult and you've got your own place and you feel more secure in life because there is still prejudice. And I don't think we need to rush to come out unless you want to, unless you feel safe and comfortable to do so. You know, I came out at 15 and I'm kind of quite aware that that's quite exceptional because, yeah, it, yeah, for sure. you know, but I had a mum that just told me I could do and be whatever I wanted, you know, as long as I wasn't hurting anyone. And so that, you know, I took that and ran with it. And so... But I feel like not everyone has that and not everyone kind of has the support. You know, when I did come out, it wasn't um, that people, no one was like shocked, um, but no one was horrible about it. But no one was like, I always knew either. Like there was just kind of yeah, like, yeah. oh, okay, sure. Um, and when I started doing my poetry and was like out, and especially when I was doing poetry on like the black circuit mm -hmm. and um, people would say, oh, respect like um some yeah, people yeah. Would literally say like i don't agree but like respect for saying it like whatever mm. i said about my sexuality I mean, no it's like i mean they, they, that's them trying i guess <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but i don't then, when i did stuff for, for white audiences um and they'd come up to me and say oh, what's it like, you know, having a Jamaican family and being gay? Hmm. And there was this assumption that, like, my family hated me or had disowned yeah, me, yeah. and that never had happened. And that, you know, and it was just always fine with my family. And I think there are many families with which it's just totally fine. And maybe they don't, like, shout about it, like, but it's just, it is what it is. Which I guess contribute, that will contribute to the normalcy of it, really, if people yeah. have, It doesn't have to be a declaration because, yeah, that's... It, your identity doesn't make you distinct from any other adolescent child if you were coming out. So, you know, yeah, I definitely get that. So, yeah, I guess So, I guess the kind of question was that, like, you know, since that time when you were 15, do you think there are a lot more uh, uh, foundations and structures in place that for if kids do choose to come out mm. and choose maybe... So, for example, like where Dwayne Wade's son uh, is kind of trans, mm. um, obviously there is a support system there. Yeah. both financially and socially and familially that kind of benefits that a lot more but as is it improved that if someone does want to come out they don't have to like use my friend an example have to internalize and have to be withdrawn and feel they have to hide stuff um you know if, if i they... think you know schools have you know the resources and you know the the kind of the responsibility now to like support um young people when they come out at school um but there are so many amazing charities you know mm. especially you know this Stonewall is amazing, um, Albert Kennedy Trust, but also for trans young people like mermaids and gendered intelligence. And um, for me, one of the best experiences I've had is, you know, I've been to Gay Pride, to Pride London and Pride in Manchester, but I went to a thing called UK Black Pride, which is a pride that... Well, it's, like, it's on a Sunday, isn't it? It's the day after. Yeah. yeah and that blew my mind. Me too. To me too. It's the day after wireless as well. They had yeah. it the day after wireless. Yeah. yeah. And I I didn't know this even existed. Yeah. It's it was like carnival. It was like gay carnival. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, my goodness. <laughs> when you think that you can't get any more kitchen amazing in camp. <laughs> that was really because to be out in the you know in the light of day, literally, like yeah, yeah. I've, been to, I've been to black gay clubs and they're brilliant spaces as well. But to be daytime, yeah, with, out, man. you know, with families, older, younger people, you know, and it was just really beautiful. Like, mm. it's such a... a yeah, because that's, yeah, that's why I noticed I was, uh, yeah, a few people, uh, I met a few guys that had been to the carnival and they were like, yeah, I was like, I, was, I wasn't even aware that it existed, but I'm so happy that it does. Mm. And That's uh, amazing. And they have a comedy gigs that follow that and they want someone then... <laughs> or if not, I can. I can. Also. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jeannie Ashray, I think, was there last time. Did an amazing. Oh, cool. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. but um, I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, uh, there is a wealth of BAME uh, LGBT comics that I could always recommend for mm. event. But you know, if you want a token, <laughs> hey, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> uh, it it's been such an amazing episode, uh, Dean. We've we've just loved talking to you. I could talk about that last question. Uh, I reckon we could do another hour just on that because um, it's such a fascinating time for it. I mean, we haven't even really touched upon the fact um, that that obviously this generation uh, that's growing up now has also got this explosion 
uh, in the music industry that creates a, a set of uh, character tropes and uh, gender kind of ideas and 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 kind of a lot of kind of a lot of issues that come with that uh, that obviously would feed into kind of people's. Um, belief systems but maybe we'll do that on episode uh episode two with you if you're welcome to come back uh, at some point yeah, and, uh, yeah if, if you know the organizers of black pride uh let us know because uh, we'd love to speak to them as well oh yeah you. Um, oh yeah i mean lady phil is like the most inspiring person and she right. really represents how, how are you gonna write that? i'm like making that. a note i'm making a note <laughs> We want, to, we want to celebrate. We um, celebrate. We celebrate you, Dean. And uh, I really appreciate you coming to the podcast. It's been good to catch up, man. It's been a long time, man. But I've been watching your progress. And uh, yeah, well, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, I am sure that you have uh, charmed my listeners as you've done myself and Howard. So, <laughs> where can uh, we find you? Um, obviously, while we're locked down, can't find you live. But um, where can people find out more about you and find out about the book as well? Um, so the Black Flamingo is on sale as as audiobook, ebook, and a physical book. So um, can easily I'm, be delivered to your house. Uh, yeah, get that. The contactless delivery. Get that. Get that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I'm on all the social medias as Dean Atta, D E A N A T T A. And I'm posting lots of poetry at the moment because I've got more time to write it. So I'm pretty much putting a poem up every day. So if you want to follow me for that, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I got a Facebook page. Brilliant. So, all the good socials, uh, Dean. Can't thank you enough we send you love and light on good friday um, and have a wonderful weekend and hopefully let's catch up again soon thank you so much for being on the pod take thanks care bye. take care thanks, dean. Have a good day. thanks dean bye. you've been listening to dane baptiste questions everything hosted by dane baptiste for more from dane go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him at dane baptweets our guest was Dean Atter. You can follow Dean on Twitter and Instagram at Dean Atter. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at the Howard Cohen. Thanks to Polly and Gelly. Hey, if you like what you've been listening to, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening. And remember, question everything. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.